We started our series on Ephesians back in September. Uh, we've taken some breaks along the way. Uh, a few weeks in December, we um, kind of focused in on Advent theme, and then first two weeks of the new year, we did some other stuff. Um, but this morning, uh, we are wrapping up our study of the book of Ephesians. So if you have a Bible, uh, you can go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6, starting with verse 10. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can use one of the Bibles uh, in the Purax in front of you. Uh, we started this series back in September because we uh, unveiled a new vision. And what we said was that our vision is grounded in the book of Ephesians. So our purpose for going through this the past few months has been to explore our new vision, mission, and values as a church. And what we have seen time and time again uh, from this letter written by the Apostle Paul is that the theme of Ephesians is unity. And it really centers on how God is at work in the world in the person of Jesus to bring unity to all that has been broken and fractured by sin. And as we come to our passage this morning, the conclusion of this letter, uh, in many ways, this is kind of a, a summary of all that Paul has touched on. Uh, but specifically here at the end of this letter, what we discover is that what we might think of as the supernatural world and the natural world overlap much more than we might be aware of. Uh, Gina Vargas is going to come and read our passage, and then we'll get into it. I'm wearing my big girl shoes, so I don't have to move the microphone. All right. So, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. So that you may also may know how I am and what I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for all of the goodness 
in this letter, uh, in your word. We thank you for the truths of the gospel that we have discovered. And we pray that as we close out this series, this study of Ephesians this morning, we pray that one final time through this letter that you would communicate the good news of Jesus to us, that you would help us to believe it, that you would help us to experience it, and that you would help us to live it out. Uh, We pray that you would apply the good news to us wherever we find ourselves, believing, disbelieving, unsure of what we believe. Uh, You are present with us by the Holy Spirit, and we look to you now to teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Whenever I uh, talk about uh, things like Satan, demons, supernatural powers, I find it helpful to reference a quote from the Christian writer and thinker C.S. Lewis. Uh, C.S. Lewis wrote a book called The Screwtape Letters, and um, the way that this book is framed is that it's an older demon, yes, an older demon writing these letters. Um, He's writing to uh, his nephew, and uh, the the nephew's name is Wormwood. Uh, The demon writing is Screwtape. That's why it's called The Screwtape Letters. And what Screwtape is helping his young nephew to think about is how to really essentially destroy Christians, how to destroy the faith of those who follow Jesus. Uh, They refer to uh, these people, these Christians, as patients. And at one point, Screwtape tells Wormwood that one of the tools of the trade is to conceal their existence so that humans would not think they were even real. And at one point, um, C.S. Lewis says this, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. In other words, he's saying that when it comes to devils, when it comes to Satan and the supernatural we tend to have two kind of opposite reactions. On the one hand, we don't believe that any of that stuff is real. Or on the other hand, we have this unhealthy obsession with it. Well, the Apostle Paul uh, here closes out this letter. And Paul is really kind of at a middle ground. He's at a middle ground because he obviously believes in the existence of the supernatural. Uh, He believes in the existence of real evil. He believes in the existence of Satan, but he doesn't obsess over it. Yes, he talks about it uh, in this letter, but he doesn't obsess over it. And so that's the approach that we're going to take this morning. We want to be realistic about the existence of spiritual forces that desire to destroy us in our faith. And this is really helpful what Paul does for us. It's as though he opens up the curtain. He allows us to to see maybe what we aren't accustomed to seeing. And what we realize is that there is much more going on behind the scenes than we are aware of on a daily basis. And so we're going to approach this passage by asking two questions. What are we up against and how do we overcome it? What are we up against and how do we overcome it? Verse 11, Paul says this. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against what? The schemes of the devil. And then verse 12, he says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against 
the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. And then verse 16, uh, he refers to how we are up against the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, this is a lot for us to take in. Uh, I don't know where you are in your worldview. Uh, what I mean by that is just the way that you view the world, the way that you look at the world. Uh, it could be that as you sit here this morning, your worldview does not allow for this stuff. Like you just can't bring yourself to a point where you could believe that stuff like this exists, that it's real. Or maybe it's so much a part of your worldview, like as we talked about, that you obsess over it. You have this unhealthy obsession with it. Well, I want to first come back to um, what if your worldview just does not allow for this kind of stuff to be real, to exist? I want to just maybe help provoke you to think how unique that view actually is. I, I know, it, it's funny, right? It sounds weird for me to say that because here we are in the Western world. Here we are in America, um, what is increasingly a secular world, meaning that um, it's not defined by a, a Christian worldview, a, a religious outlook on life. And so increasingly, the way that our culture looks at the world um, we do not have a place for the supernatural, more and more. We don't have a place for it, but that's unique. As we think, consider the whole world, the globe, that view is unique. Now, as Westerners, we tend to be pretty arrogant. We tend to think that the world is just like us or should be like us. But again, the reality when it comes to this specific point is that our view is unique. Our view is the minority view because globally speaking, most people believe in the supernatural. Their worldview has space for this kind of stuff. So just something for you to think about and um, ponder as we continue to go through this text. But Paul, in that, as far as that question, what are we up against? We're up against the schemes of the devil. We're up against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers. Uh, over uh, of darkness, and we're up against the flaming darts of the evil one. Now, the Bible doesn't give us great deal about the, uh, a great deal of information about this stuff. I don't know about you, but I, I want to know more about Satan's bio, right? I want to know more about his bio, but the Bible just doesn't go there. And I think one of the reasons, I mean, this letter is an example of it. Like, there are a couple places in this letter where Paul touches on this kind of stuff. And then obviously here as he closes out the letter, it's a bigger theme. But I think the reason that the Bible doesn't dwell on it is because of Jesus, because of what Jesus did. The Bible tells us, we, we heard this um, in the uh, assurance of forgiveness uh, that Lynn read for us earlier in the service from Colossians 2, 13 to 15, words written by the Apostle Paul. God forgave us all our sins, Paul wrote, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So from the vantage point of the Bible, Satan, demons, they are defeated foes because of the resurrection of Jesus and his conquering of sin, evil, and death. But this stuff is still a reality, and Paul wants to talk about it honestly. He wants us 
He doesn't want us to be naive. We could say that. He doesn't want us to be naive. He wants us to be realistic and have space for this kind of stuff in our, in our thinking and in the world that we navigate. Paul assumes the devil's existence. He assumes, it, he assumes it as common ground with his readers. You know, Paul's obviously not having to go out of his way to try to convince them that Satan is real, that this stuff is legitimate. Paul's purpose isn't to satisfy our modern-day curiosity. Like, we come at this, again, because of our, especially because of our worldview as Western American people in our culture. Like, we need more information, don't we? Like, all right, if I'm going to take this stuff seriously, I, I need more information. But Paul wasn't writing to satisfy our modern-day curiosity. He's writing to warn God's family of the realities of these things. And it comes down to this. We have an enemy who wants to destroy us. That's what we need to be realistic about. We don't want to be naive about that. Like that's, as far as living out the Christian faith, that's a basic starting point of wisdom. To come to grips with the fact that there is one who wants to destroy us in our faith. Now again, that's a lot to take in. What do we, what do, we do with that? But Paul is clearly saying that our struggle is not with human beings. That's not to say that there aren't struggles among human beings. We know that. But Paul is telling us that if we were, again, to kind of peel back the layers, if we were to open the curtains, we would see in his own words that there is this, uh, there are rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over the present darkness. In other words, what he's um, trying to, to train us in is that evil takes many shapes. It's both personal and systemic. It's both personal and systemic. And so as we encounter um, some of the personal temptations in our own lives that are so intense, Paul wants us to have space in our worldview to realize, oh, like there's an a, a per- evil force, personal evil force that wants to destroy me, that wants to draw me away from Jesus. But then also as we encounter injustices in the world, um, uh, uh, in relationships with people, it's even at systemic levels, there, is a, a, there are dark powers behind all of that. Because of the fall of the human race into sin, as we always say, sin runs deep. Sin uh, enters into every area of life, both on a broad scale and then the specific details of life. Paul wants us to be wise about this. Our struggle is not just simply with human beings. It's not just with what we tend to see on a day-in and day-day basis. Verse 12, he uses the word wrestle. We do not wrestle against, he says. This word wrestle, it it means struggle, and it's only used here in the New Testament. It's not used anywhere else in the New Testament. And as it was used kind of in the surrounding uh, time of Paul's day, it was used to refer oftentimes to a wrestling match a wrestling match. And so Paul is wanting us to realize that this is intense. Like this is a struggle. This is like a wrestling match that's going on. One um, commentator on this passage says that uh, what, what Paul's talking about here is really shorthand for powers great and small, personal and impersonal, individual and systemic that resist the saving activity of God among humanity. 
There is real personal evil that is resistant to God's plan of salvation, to God's way of shalom for the world. And so as we go about our daily lives, we'll talk more about this when we wrap up, we need to have wisdom. We need to have awareness that this is going on. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. Like as we start to think about what do we do with this? How do we live in light of it? And we're going to talk some about that. Hopefully, will be helpful. But also, don't forget Paul's original audience. Don't forget the context of Ephesians, this setter, this city um, to which he was writing these, uh, these churches. They were located in the city of Ephesus. Just to give you an idea of kind of the, the world of, of Ephesus, in Acts chapter 19, so Acts is a book of the Bible uh, that follows after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, and ascension into heaven. It tells the story of how uh, the apostles and leaders began to uh, preach the gospel of Jesus, live it out, form churches. Um, and in Acts chapter 19, Paul is doing the work of church planting in Ephesus. He's doing ministry in Ephesus. And we encounter the seven sons of Sceva. Sceva was a Jewish high priest. And these seven sons of Sceva tried to perform an exorcism, but were in, injured by an evil spirit. So this is in Acts chapter 19. Like You could go and read about it. Everyone in Ephesus heard about this. The incident led believers of Jesus to come forward and to confess and divulge all of the uh, super satanic practices that they were wrapped up in. And a number of those who practiced magic arts and brought their books together and burned them in front of everyone. And it tells us that there were 50,000 pieces of silver worth of stuff that was burned. Just gives you kind of a little bit of um, uh, an understanding of the dynamics of Ephesus and how as Paul writes to these churches, there's common ground assuming the existence of these things. I mentioned that um, kind of the dominant view of our culture about how increasingly that there's no space for the supernatural in our view of the world. Um, I've had the opportunity to travel to West Africa on two different occasions. Spent time in uh, Senegal as well as Gambia. And let me tell you, the worldview there is very different. Very different. What is assumed, what's talked about, uh, the things that I uh, experienced and witnessed, and also the stories that I heard. It's a whole nother world, really. Now, what we do as Westerners, because it's just been our history, we think, oh, well... They're kind of, they're uneducated, they're silly, they're foolish for believing these things. I'd be careful about that being a part of your worldview and leading to the conclusions that you come to. These things are real. These are realities. And what we have to come to grips with is that as we seek, as the followers of Jesus, to build, to be used by God to build his kingdom here in this city, in our region, we should expect there to be opposition. It will be resisted. Have you noticed just in general how hard the Christian life is? I mean, life in general for anyone is hard. But the Christian life in particular, like there are many times in my life, like weekly, maybe daily, I don't know, where I, I have some sort of thought of, it'd be a lot easier to not follow Jesus a lot easier. 
And, and I really believe that. I mean that. It would be easier for me in my life to not follow Jesus. But Jesus is real, and Jesus invites us into a life of fullness. But that life of fullness, increasingly entering into it, is hard. There are forces, evil forces, that resist that. And these struggles are part of the larger story of God. How do we overcome it? Like, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Um, all right, we are, are trying to get to a point where we can allow more space for these realities uh, in the way that we think, in the way that we live our lives, but how do we overcome it? Well, Paul's concern is stability. In verse 11, he talks about being strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. In verse 13, he uses uh, the word stand three different times, withstand, stand firm, and then stand uh, twice in verse 13 and then once in verse 14. And the way that Paul is writing this, what's interesting is that he's calling us to stand firm, um, but especially in the original language in which he, he wrote this, it's clear that we can't make ourselves stand firm. Finally, be strong in what? In the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. This is a present, active, ongoing process. You could say, keep on being strong. But it's not a strength that we create for ourselves. It's a strength that we get from being in the Lord, in Jesus. That's a theme of Ephesians throughout. Union with Jesus. Identification with Jesus. That because of our, because of our faith in Jesus, what is true of Jesus becomes true of us. We are in union with him. We receive his righteousness, his record, his reputation. And what Paul, the starting point for how we overcome um, what we are up against is by being in Jesus, rooted in him. Now, that should be good news. It's good news for me. I mean, it, Christian life is still hard, but this is good news because I think if Paul were to just ha have said, all right, you need to be strong, you need to be brave, it, it would put it back on me. The emphasis would be on me and what I must do and how I must do it, and it would just be too overwhelming. Now, don't get me wrong. Paul is clearly saying that we have to respond that there is action required from us, but the action that is required from us is, is going deeper and deeper in Jesus, not in our own strength, not in our own resources. We are up against superhuman um, forces. Our power is not enough. Our strength is not enough. We are in over our heads. I, got, I just want you to hear that and to think about it. Like, we should wake up every day with an approach that we are in over our heads. Like, that's the starting point here, of realizing that and believing it and feeling our desperation for Jesus. When Paul talks here about strength and might in the Lord, he's using the same kind of language that he used in chapter 1. Chapter 1, verses 19 through 20. There, Paul write, wrote, the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. What is the strength of the Lord? What is his might? 
It's basically his resurrection power. His resurrection power. That's another theme of Ephesians. That Paul is inviting us to experience and live in the resurrection power of Jesus. Like, think about that power. Paul describes it as immeasurable, immeasurably great. Think of it. Jesus on the cross absorbs sin, evil, death. And yet he overcomes it. He overpowers it through the power of his resurrection. And Paul is saying that we have access to that power. It's not a power uh, that originates within us. It's a power that is given to us through union with Jesus. Resurrection power. This is about God enabling us. There's a balance, for sure, of of divine enablement and divine enablement and human cooperation. Like these things aren't opposed to each other. God acts on our behalf and we respond to it. That's the story of, of the Bible. It's a story of how his grace transforms us. Find your strength in the Lord. Find your strength in the Lord. That's convicting to me. I mean, it's convicting to me even apart from all of this talk about supernatural powers. Like, I'm convicted as I think about my own life on uh, a regular basis and how often I trust in my own strength and power. How often I rely on it to get me through uh, a situation, to get me through a season of life. And I also think about how... um, how exhausting that is. Because really what's happening is that I'm trying to draw from a power and a strength that just is not there, that's not sufficient. There's another way. There's a better way through life with Jesus and union in him to be strong in his might. So from there, we ask the question, okay, how do we keep on being strong in Jesus? How do we keep on being strong in Jesus. Paul's answer by putting on the armor of God. By putting on the armor of God. He says, put on the whole armor of God. Take it up. This, this word that Paul uses, uh, armor, um, it, it, it referred to the complete equipment of a fully armed Roman soldier. Now, like we don't know if this is the case, what was running through Paul's mind, but let's remember the context of Paul writing this letter. Paul is in prison by the Roman authorities. And so it's quite possible that as he wrote this letter, he's looking up at a guard who is guarding him. And maybe that the Holy Spirit gave him, yes, we need to put on the armor of God. We don't know that for sure, but it's quite possible. But the word he uses, it refers to the complete equipment of a fully armed Roman soldier. We are not left defenseless. Yes, we are up against forces that want to destroy us, but we are not left defenseless. Paul says, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Then he says, take up the shield of faith, take the helmet of salvation, take up the sword of the spirit. There's not time for, we could do a Bible study on each of these. Uh, We don't have time for that. But did you hear uh, in many of those having, that word having? Having fastened, having put, having put. In other words, it's another indication that the source of these uh, powers do not reside in us. 
We put them on. They are given to us. And Paul, Paul is basically saying, make use of what Jesus has given you. And that's really a way that we could talk about the Christian life. The Christian life is all about getting used to who we are in Jesus. It's all about coming home uh, each day regularly to who we are in Jesus. It's waking up to our identity in him and to the access that we have in him. And Paul says, put all of that on. Remember earlier, chapter 4, he talked about putting off the old self, putting on the new self. Similar kind of language. Put this on. It doesn't originate from you. It comes from Jesus and his work. But put these things on because you are not left defenseless. Flaming darts. It's Kind of weird, isn't it, to think about really what Paul is describing is that we are being shot at by flaming darts from Satan all the time in our lives, and we have no idea. They were burning arrows that were used to destroy wooden shields and other defenses. Uh, the shield of faith is able to extinguish the devil's attacks. Paul is using all of these as metaphors for the spiritual resources that we have in Christ. Remember where he started in this letter. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Every spiritual blessing. Not some spiritual blessings, but every spiritual blessing. In other words, we are complete. We are whole in Jesus. We are not left defenseless. Paul's descriptions draw from the Old Testament, several places, but specifically Isaiah chapter 59, verse 17. He put on righteousness as a breastplate and a helmet of salvation on his head. It's significant because it's not, all, not only kind of informing us of where Paul is getting some of this content, it's also an indication for us that Paul was rooted in the story. Paul knew the story. He had knowledge of the biblical story. And he knew how to make use of it. It wasn't just intellectual um, belief, but it transformed who he was and shaped the way that he lived his life. Put Jesus on. Put his resources on. It is su sufficient. After um, talking about this armor of God, we might sometimes think that he goes on to talk about prayer as something separate, but that's actually not the case. Um, it says praying. You see that? I'm sorry, I turned back to chapter 14. Or there, are not four, there aren't 14 chapters. Chapter 4, um, verse 18, praying at all times in the Spirit. This is a continuation of what he's saying. This is part of the armor of God. Prayer is the most powerful weapon or resource. And I want to just camp out here for a few minutes. Four times Paul uses the word all. At all times, with all supplication, with all perseverance, for all the saints. This language of prayer is all-inclusive. And what it's getting at is that prayer is a way of life. What is prayer exactly? What is prayer? It, it's, prayer is always this weird thing, isn't it? Um, you know, most of us struggle with prayer. We struggle um, 
knowing how to approach God in prayer. We struggle with knowing what to say to God in prayer. Um, but prayer is essentially a way of being in Jesus. It's the way that we relate to God through Jesus. It's the way that we talk to him. It's a, it's a relational concept. You know, in the same way that we talk to uh, others in our life. Paul is wanting us to um, live into that in our prayer life at all times, with all supplication, with all perseverance for all the saints. In other words, prayer is not just simply we do for five minutes or less uh, or more um, in the morning to start our day, and then the next time we pray is the following morning or whenever. Prayer is a way of life. See, Paul's category for talking about the whole of the Christian life is being in Jesus, union with him. This lifestyle of prayer in which we are conversing with Jesus, we are living with an awareness of his presence at all times, with all supplication, with all perseverance for all the saints. Prayer reminds us of our dependence. And I'm going I'm to say something that might be really convicting, um, but I'm really speaking to myself first and foremost. We don't pray because we're arrogant. We don't pray because we're arrogant. We don't think that we really actually need the power and presence of Jesus. Like, that's what it comes down to. Again, if, like, I'm speaking to myself. Like, I can make up all kinds of excuses, and some of them are real excuses. I'm too busy, uh, whatever it might be. But when it really comes down to it, I don't pray because I'm prideful. I don't pray because I feel like I can get through in my own strength and power. If we really felt like we were dependent on Jesus, like if we really believed, like, all this is true, like, uh, I'm in over my head, I'm utterly dependent on Jesus, Prayer would mark our lives more than it does. We don't pray because we are arrogant. But the gospel transforms this. Like like prayer, like nothing else, clarifies the truth and reality of the gospel. That we are dependent on Jesus. That we uh, come into right relationship with God because of what Jesus has done for us. We can, even, we, we can come to God in prayer. We have access to him because of the gospel, because of the good news. Prayer highlights the gospel. It highlights dependency. And so I want to encourage you um, to move out of your arrogance. Move out of your pride. Embrace your dependence. It's okay. It's good. It's freeing to actually embrace the fact that you aren't strong and powerful enough to make it through life, and you are certainly not strong and powerful enough to overcome the evil forces that want to destroy your life. Now, I also can't help but to think, in light of all that Paul is writing about, like, why is it that cultivating a prayer life is so difficult? One of the reasons is arrogance, but also it's because of all of this. There are spiritual forces. There's an evil one who doesn't want you to pray, who doesn't want you to experience intimacy with Jesus, who is trying to destroy your faith. Like, do you know what I'm talking about? Like, I, I, maybe I set aside, set aside time and space to pray, and, and I'm actually looking forward to it. And then, like, two minutes in, I, I'm like, 
All right, I got to start over again. I, I don't even know what's happened the last two minutes. I don't know what I've said. Um, and it's like two minutes later, okay, I got to start over. Like, why is it so hard? What's going on? I mean, the reality is there's a lot going on. And we're all wired differently. That's going on. But we can't be naive to the fact that there is an evil one who doesn't want us to pray, who is committed to creating obstacles and difficulties for us to experience intimacy with Jesus. Paul, one final time in this letter, refers to the mystery of the gospel. Um, picking up in verse 19, um, talking about prayer, and also for me, so now he uh, is bringing it back to his personal situation, pray also for me that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in change that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. What is the mystery of the gospel? This has been a theme of Ephesians. The mystery of the gospel is how God is at work in this world through the work of Jesus Christ and through the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to bring together people who have diverse stories and backgrounds. Uh, specifically for Paul's context, it was about Jew and Gentile being united in one family as the family of God. Whenever Paul uses this phrase, mystery of the gospel, whether it's here in Ephesians as we've looked at, whether it's in uh, Colossians or Romans, I think it was mentioned in Romans 1, maybe, Mike, when you preached, uh, you at least referred to it. This is all over the place. And when Paul uses this phrase, mystery of the gospel, he's referring to this work of God to bring together Jew and Gentile, to bring together people with diverse stories and backgrounds, people that would not come together, that would not experience unity if it weren't for the power of the gospel. Paul says that he is an ambassador of this gospel. He says it's why he's in chains. In other words, his work to see this as a reality is being opposed. It's being resisted. And as we, as a church family, um, seek to testify to the power of the gospel specifically in this way, to become a, 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 to, to experience unity in diversity, we can't be naive. We have to expect, we have to assume that we are going to be opposed by spiritual forces. And those spiritual forces are going to show up in all kinds of uh, different realities and man they'll manifest themselves in different ways as we seek to become family together. We have to expect it. How do we overcome it? We put on the armor of God together. And this is something that I, um, has really hit me specifically in this time going through Ephesians. How this was, I mean, it's true of all of the New Testament letters, but Paul wrote this to a church community. He wrote this to a people. And even earlier in the week, when I first was really wrestling with this passage, I was thinking exclusively in terms of like me as an individual putting on the armor of God. And there is application to that. But Paul is right. I mean, how many times did, have, did we see throughout Ephesians the phrase together, together, together? Like we walk in this together. We put on the armor of God together. We need one another. Last Sunday, after the worship service, we uh, had a newcomer's lunch. Um, 
And it was, there were probably 10, 12 of us um, coming from diverse stories and backgrounds, uh, racially diverse, coming from different um, places uh, of life. Yet the time that we had together, despite our diverse backgrounds, despite maybe what we didn't have in common, the Holy Spirit was present among us to the point of tears for some of us. Like, this is what Jesus does. This is how the gospel works. This is the power of the Spirit to create unity where there was once disunity. This is the work of God in the world. Remember, verse 10, chapter 1. What is God doing? He has a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Jesus, things in heaven and things on earth, and that includes people, uniting them as one family. But for us to live into this vision, we have to be dependent. We have to be dependent. We can't trust in our own power and strength because there are going to be many times in which it's going to be too hard and we're going to just simply want to give up. We have to be dependent. Finally, look at verses 21 through 24. This is just a final greeting. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe I won't uh, have time to even address this, but this too is the word of God. It's only a few verses, so I'm going to read it again. It's been a while now since Gina read the passage. So that you also may know how I am and what I'm doing, Tychicus, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will tell you everything. So Tychicus was the one delivering this letter to the churches in Ephesus. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. Sometimes we come to places uh, in God's word like this and we think, all right, I get it, it's a final greeting, but what application is there to our lives? And I'm not always sure as well, but I can tell you this, Tychicus, an ordinary guy, like we don't know much about him. Ordinary guy doing ordinary things, at least for him, delivering letters, doing his, 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 following his vocational calling, doing what God had called him to do, delivering these letters. And Paul mentions these relationships, real people who are in relationship with one another. The point is this, that as we go about our ordinary, sometimes mundane lives, we have to remember that it's all part of a larger story. It's part of a larger story. And at the heart of this story is this wrestling, this wrestling match of spiritual forces. And God's invitation to us, as those who have diverse stories and backgrounds, is to come into his family together, to put on the armor of God together, to live out the faith together to follow our ordinary callings, regardless of how prominent they may be, how insignificant they may seem, we all have a part to play in the story. And together, our individual stories converge to tell God's story. And so may our city, our communities, our region, may they come to learn the story of God as we embody it for the good of the places and people we live among. Let's pray.
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how it includes hard and confusing things that uh, are not always easy for us to relate to. But I pray that you would give us the faith to believe this stuff. I mean, to really believe it and to have our lives changed and to live differently in light of it. I pray that you would remove our pride and arrogance. Pray that you would replace it with humility and dependence. I pray that you would give us the experience of experiencing Jesus and all the spiritual blessings that we have in him. And as I pray, I pray that as we live all of this stuff out, I pray that many would be provoked, that they would ask questions about who you are, and that you would draw many people into your family as a result of using your real people in ordinary life. I pray in Christ's name, amen.